Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're going to talk about Hungary. The European Council is considering freezing seven and a half billion euros in funds allocated to Hungary due to rule of law violations. And meanwhile, the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has embarked on a controversial national consultation concerning the EU sanctions on Russia. What does this mean for Hungary-EU relations? How will Hungary's confrontational approach to Brussels continue to shape European foreign policy when it comes to Russia and even to China and other parts of the world in the future? And what does it all mean for the future of the European project? I am absolutely thrilled to welcome a special guest this week who's going to help us make sense of all of these things. I've been practicing her name for the last few minutes, but I'm probably still going to get it wrong. Zsuzsanna Zelenyi is a Hungarian politician and foreign policy specialist. She started her political career as a member of Viktor Orban's Fidesz party in the late 1980s and early 1990s at a time when it was still a liberal anti-communist outfit. And she left the party in 1994 before returning to the Hungarian parliament as a founding member of the pro-European Together Party. She's just published a book called Tainted Democracy, Viktor Orban and the Subversion of Hungary, the inside story of Hungary's descent into autocracy or, well, we can talk about what what kind of uh, uh, regime it is and what the best words to describe this, uh, what he calls an illiberal democracy in the hands of, uh, of Viktor Orban. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you very much for inviting me. So why don't we start with um, the EU, and then maybe you can work back to what's happening in Hungary. But this decision to to freeze Hungary's funds is something which uh, the EU has been talking about for a, for a long time. But it's the first time that the EU has actually um, enforced its rule of law mechanism since it was introduced in 2014. Can you talk a bit more about how we got to this point, why the EU waited so long to take action, how serious you think it is about disciplining Orban, and what this means for, for the relationship between Hungary and the EU going forward and the role within the EU? Well, obviously, the... The whole idea of uh, conditionality to European funds become an, a, a realistic idea when Viktor Orban was already ruling Hungary for 10 years in 2020. Most of Hungarians believe that the EU was really waiting too long. Uh, but we know very well that the EU is not one institution. The European Parliament had a lot of criticism towards Orban's regime on rule of law and corruption uh, allegations. So there were plenty of talk about Hungary uh, years before, but actually very little was done. Or everything what was done, like infringement processes, basically could not uh, hinder the making Viktor Orban, his regime, more big and robust. So the 10th year, when, when the EU finally got to a point that something really has to be done was because I think member states understood that uh, Hungary or Viktor Orban's government is a security risk for the European Union. Uh, it was very open towards radical right political forces within Europe and the United States. And also with Russia, politics specifically was super controversial. And I think when, when Orban started to use veto systematically uh, European decisions, 
these were a combination of issues that basically led the various EU decision-making bodies, specifically the Council, to decide that a tool must be launched and finances, which are one of the most important source for power for Viktor Orban, must be provided only uh, certain conditionalities. I think that's, that was a long, long way and a lot of frustration for many Hungarians to see this. But how, how are Hungarians um, divided on it? I mean, presumably a lot of um, Orban supporters probably, you know, are rallying behind the flag and, and seeing this as further evidence of, of foreign attempts at, at subverting Hungarian sovereignty and Hungarian democracy. Or are people happy that, um, that the EU is is standing up for, for the rule of law and trying to discipline Orban? Well, obviously, there is not an average Hungarian in this country. It's a deeply polarised society. And there's big, big, uh, pernicious polarisation between the those who follow Orban. He has a very strong 2 million uh, camp, a voting base, a very strong voting base, which is served by continuous political campaign and... and, and um, the state media, which is sharing only exclusively the ideas of the government of the Orban uh, system. And of course, a lot of critics of, of Orban, which at least the same amount of people we are speaking about. So Hungary is, uh, is not dominated by pro-Orban supporters. Uh, it's, um, it's a different thing that the, the, the party can still win the elections with basically one third of all the voters. But Basically, uh, it's a divided public. And while many people are very frustrated by EU policies, uh, of course, there is a revolutionary support behind Viktor Orban. There is a very strong anti-EU sentiment, which has been raised already 10, 12 years ago and somehow heated again, uh, again and again and every few years when Viktor Orban needs an, an enemy when when his politics are uh, too radical for the European Union. It's a long issue. It was not always the case. You know, uh, Viktor Orban's Fidesz party already, even in 10 years ago, was rather pro-Europe. But it has changed uh, dramatically in 2010 when uh, Orban got this landslide victory and ever since he could repeat his big majority in the country. And in terms of how it's seen from other parts of the EU, I mean, in the past, the EPP was a shield for Orban from a lot of this pressure and was one of the reasons why the EU, uh, you know, was reluctant to to act against him. In the end, Fidesz got suspended from the EPP. The EPP's lost quite a lot of its power within the EU anyway. Angela Merkel's not there anymore um, a lot of EPP leaders have lost power. But it is also true that, that Ursula von der Leyen depended on Hungarian support to become um, uh, the president of the European Commission. And she's certainly been less aggressive in taking on Hungary than than Juncker was beforehand. Um, he used to call um, Viktor Orban Mr. Dictator, didn't he? Um, <laughs> and Timmermans, who was in charge of that portfolio, was was quite sort of radical in terms of 
certainly rhetorically holding the, the Hungarian and, and Polish governments to account. What do you think the, the sort of internal politics is now? Has it changed a lot as a result of the war in Ukraine and the fact that, that Hungary has been somewhat isolated in its, um, in its close relationship with Russia? Well, I think definitely the European conservatives were blankly very complacent or even opportunistic with Orban. They needed Orban's support. And of course, Orban made very double-sided politics. So he, he nurtured a very important relationship with the German Christian Democrats who were very supportive for, for the party way longer than, than when actually they realized that Orban is a problem for Europe and also the I mean European unity, which is a uh, which is a, a German priority, a priority of foreign policy. I think, well, definitely a lot of things has changed, but also the the German Christian Democrats are not in power any longer. Uh, the it's a different uh, composition of government, but many things are similar. And I think Viktor Orban is trying to maintain as good relationship to the German. Uh, politics and big business, which he always treated very carefully and very positively. So it's, it's also very important to see that, you know, in Orban mindset, money and business is a key component on politics. So he always treats these two things together. It's also uh, very typical for his foreign policy. He recreated uh, the foreign ministry 10 years ago as a ministry of foreign policy and trade and instructed ambassadors to act abroad as, as uh, business dealers and create trade relationships and bring, uh, bring business uh, FDI to Hungary. So, so that's a very conceptual thing, how Viktor Orban is looking at politics. It's, it's never separate from business and, and some kind of control on, on the economy and flow, flow of money. That is, it's very important to see because this Spell tells a lot about how uh, Orbán's changed his China and Russia politics uh, very surprisingly uh, after uh, 2010. While uh, Fidesz party was rather anti-Russia and anti-Chinese uh, before they came to power in 2010. Basically, he convinced his, his party elite that these are good moves, that he promised them that more money will come to Hungary if they have go in good terms to the Chinese and Russians. Uh, energy was also a super important, uh, and obviously Russia, Russia politics was all about energy and control of energy and energy, trade energy. So I think this, going back to your original question, this is how Orban managed the, the relationships with the EPP on a very pragmatic level, and German and other EPP parties were also very pragmatic in this regard. And he could also make them believe that this is an ideological battle and democracy is it's not a democratic issue or not a rule of law issue, but it's an ideological struggle. And for a long time, it was also only the socialists, the liberals and the green parties who criticized Orban and not the conservatives. So that has definitely changed in the last uh, two years, I think it's a significant change. You can, you can see it in the European Parliament, and it's very interesting, of course, how it will turn out uh, in the European Council in the next uh, couple of days. Let's say. Why don't we move on to that? So the Hungarian response to the 
blocking of, of EU funds has been to veto an EU aid package to Ukraine worth 18 billion euros and also decision to, to hold up a deal on the minimum corporate tax rates. It's not the first time that Hungary has blocked EU decisions. We've seen Hungary vetoing a lot of decisions on China and Russia in the past. But this is quite a, a big deal in terms of the number one priority which Europe is facing at the moment. But also, I think unusually, a priority for, for a lot of the Central and Eastern European countries that have supported Hungary in the past. How do you think that that's going to play out? What is um, Orban's decision making? I think this the video of the 18 billion euro aid package to Ukraine is really the ever law for Hungarian foreign policy and also demonstrate how desperate uh, Orban's government is at the moment. Uh, they are badly needing this money. Um, uh, Hungarian economy is in very bad shape. Uh, it's beyond 20% inflation for several months now. And the, there are all strikes in Hungary from, uh, from teachers uh, since the beginning of uh, September. Uh, and the, there is a huge um, living uh, crisis coming in, in the fall. So there are a lot of kind of ad hoc decisions the government is taking at the moment. Uh, so they definitely didn't expect the European Commission to be so strong. I think the whole idea in the last couple of months was a surprise to the Hungarian government. They also changed their policies in the middle of the summer. And now they are really hoping that the European Council will basically withdraw from these very tough considerations that they, they would uh, uh, withdraw the financial package uh, or set a significant part of the financial transfer for Hungary, which I believe they will. So I actually think that Orban can always trust that other European leaders do not have a strong interest that Hungary collapses economically. There is no interest that there is a, a big destabilization of one of the EU countries. And this probably will push the, the council uh, members to come some kind of compromise, even though I think this veto, both veto which Orban just announced, is, is really alienating uh, the Hungarian government further and isolating from the European partners. But I, be, I don't think that with these decisions, this, this whole struggle between uh, Orban's government and the European institutions will, will stop. I actually expect a longer struggle. And uh, what we have to see is that Orban's regime under pressure is radicalizing. This was always Viktor Orban's method over the many, many decades of politics, when he was, you know, cornered, he went really beyond the point what other people didn't expect it. So I think it's a big fight. He likes this. He is actually, uh, he's a com confrontational, uh, transactional political leader. So it, this is an environment where he always can figure something out that no one else expects. So... What I think is interesting is there's not just a war against Brussels now. There's a it's something where he's basically taking aim at, at the central policy issue for governments like the Polish government that have been very close allies of his in the past. Can we go a bit more into that topic? The war in Ukraine is now like the number one issue. It's, it's you know, the EU used to be a peace project. Now it's a war project. 
and the fighting of this war is absolutely central to the uh, both the perspectives of, of a lot of the member states, but the whole dynamics of European integration now being driven by it. And, um, you know, obviously... Orbán's coming from a much more pro-Russian perspective than a lot of Eastern European countries and Central European countries. And that's been reflected, you know, for many years in different policy positions, both the vaccines policy at the beginning of COVID, but also the the way that he's personally um, positioned himself vis-a-vis Putin. But it looks like we could be heading to quite a big showdown later on because Hungary has uh, has talked about having a national consultations on on sanctions policy, which seems like a really radical move. Do you want to explain a bit more both what you think might happen as a result of that, how it could work out, but also what what you think the effects might be on on EU sanctions policy? So uh, yes, at the very moment, since the since October, there's a several weeks uh, campaign going on in Hungary. But anyone should imagine this, you know, there is, you cannot simply not escape this. I mean, the Hungarian government puts incredible amount of money for such campaigns. There is an ongoing campaign. There is always a campaign in happening in Hungary. So we are always in fight against someone and oftentimes the European Union. Now we, the, the sanctions, uh, or the campaign says that it's a, it's a shape of a bomb and it says that Brussels sanctions will destroy us. This is the this is a tax. It's quite a radical campaign, and and obviously uh, puts the uh, European Union be blamed for any wrongdoing of the government or any economic problem Hungary is facing. Which, as I said, we we do so. So the national consultation is just an apropos for a big uh, campaign, and uh, this is also. Um, turning Hungarian, Hungarian public's attention you know, away from figuring out or believing that the Hungarian government is actually responsible for largely uh, for this uh, huge economic problem we are facing. Well, just for very short explanation, the big part of the, of the high inflation in Hungary is that we had elections in April 2022, half a year ago, and several months before the elections, the government spent incredible cash distribution practically to every citizen. So there's a lot of lot of money was spent, which served, which spurred the people to you know believe that Hungary is there's no problem around, there's no war, there's no any problem, and actually the government is nice to us, which worked very well for Fidesz. But basically, they spent just so much that it's almost unbearable. Also, but there was a very strong low price cap on gasoline, which was actually just relieved uh, last night. So they overspent uh, significantly from the Hungarian budget and everything else, the price of energy is just an addition to to these problems. So, Shadana, can you explain a bit more exactly what the consultation is? So you're saying it's a pretext for a campaign, but what's the question yes. that, they're ask, that they're asking people to yeah, answer? The, this so-called national consultation, what the Orban regime introduced uh, several years ago, and they do one or two every year, uh, is, a, is, a, is a so-called consultation because it's completely untransparent, it's very uh, manipulative. So there are like questions like Russia's sanctions or, or the European Union sanctions against Russia are destroying the agriculture and uh, uh, incapacitate uh, or decapacitate uh, food to Africa. So there will be, as a result, a lot of migrants will come to Europe and, of course, will 
bring to our, will appear at our border. And then there is a question, do you support the European sanctions? So this is this is how you should imagine. If there is no any discourse, there's no any discussion. It's a but how does it get how does it get delivered to people that question? Do you get a like Well there is a six question like this and they mail it to every household. So every household what, I, gets a literally a yes. physical piece of paper uh, coming I, through their letterbox. Exactly. And then you can send it back. Either you do it or you're not. No one ever knows how many people send it back. Uh, there is no any, you know, transparency. But I have a little story about that because I have three kids and even the youngest one became 18 uh, last year. And all three of my kids received these letters from Viktor Orban with personal. Amima and my husband, we don't. So we are already, you know, calculated. We are in some kind of database that that we will not send it back anyway because they know that we are not profit as borders, but they don't know this of my kids yet because they are young. So this is a complete nonsense. It also serves a lot of, you know, updating database for the ruling party. It's also a good money for the post. Uh, and basically, it's a huge campaign. And it's it's just good for only the thing that basically they changed the, the mindset of, of Hungarian uh, population. I think many people now in Hungary believe that our bad economic result is because of the campaign. So it's a kind of brainwashing campaign, uh, obviously. And of, this is also a preparation for even worse, which is probably coming uh, in the winter. And when does this campaign, when does this consultation formally come to an end? When do you have to send your envelopes back if you uh, if you receive them? It's the uh, 9th of December. So it's this week. And there will be some kind of result. Uh, but it, there is no any oversight. There is no any monitoring on this whole process. So whatever the government wants to say, they will say. And uh, this is why I'm saying it's it's a purely a campaign opportunity for the government. In terms of the, has there been much polling on the war in, and on the sanctions in, in Hungary? Well, there are some polls and we can see that the, the opinion is, is changing. I mean, Hungarians are divided, as I said. So it's clearly demonstrated that uh, Fidesz voters are not so friendly to Ukrainians and basically believe that a Russia war in Ukraine is is a kind of maneuver of, of the US. It's a very uh, Russian type propaganda is going on in the Hungarian public media. So there are sev- several level narrative the government is using. The main idea is what Orban is representing is anti-sanction, anti-EU, but we also know that he is uh, supporting the sanctions uh, or Viktor Orban always supported uh, the sanctions uh, packages, even if he negotiated some differences for for Hungary. And then we also know that uh, when there is a bigger problem, they send uh, President Katalin Novak uh, to Ukraine. She went to see and met uh, Zelensky uh, two weeks ago. There was a photo opportunity with the Polish prime minister. She said openly that Russia is crystal clear that Russia is responsible for this war. It's interesting that on her Facebook page, there was a lots of lots of very nasty comments after this, because at the same time, the state media, which is running Orban's propaganda uh, messages, is really uh, anti-Ukraine and basically sharing the, the type of narratives which are present in the Russian media. So it's a several layer of narratives. And I, I actually, many Hungarians are quite confused.
And what about the, you know, the way that this is going to relate to Hungary's power and position within the EU? Because in the past, there was a kind of strong V4 Visegrad group sort of illiberal coalition within the EU. But that's obviously become much more complicated now with both, you know, some countries like Slovakia becoming much more liberal in their orientation, but also Russia as a sort of dividing line between Poland and um, and the Czech Republic and, and, and Hungary. So the, the sort of V4 has, has disappeared. There are new governments like Giorgio Meloni in, in Italy. Is this part of the new strategy that he's trying to find new allies within the, within the European Council? Yeah, I think the, the Visegrad cooperation, as it was flourishing during the migration campaign and like uh, five, seven years ago, is gone. It is a, you know, a political a coalition, so it can, can be redone any other time, but obviously not in the near future. I think that there's a very, very troubled relationship at the moment. And obviously, Viktor Orban's party uh, and Hungary it remained uh, very lonely with its, uh, with its uh, uh, Russia politics. Definitely, I think Orban makes a lot of effort to make new alliances. He has always been very good in alliance building. It's, it's a competency he has and uh, definitely wants to get back the Polish friendship. I think it's critical for Hungary. In the long run, Italy is definitely on the, on the to-do list. Uh, I'm not sure that for Meloni, Hungary is so important. I mean, governing Italy, it's really the Western parties, France, Germany, are way more important than, than uh, allying uh, with Hungary. It, it can be tricky for an Italian prime minister. However, ideologically, I think there's a lot Meloni can learn from Orban. And uh, they definitely will will make certain kind of cooperation. I also know that in these days, uh, Italy also represents an opinion that the very brutal proposal of the Commission towards uh, suspending Hungary's the funds to Hungary should be softened. But it's not only Italy; it's also Germany and and France is doing it at the same time. So I think uh, it's it's not that visible. But but yes, the ideological kind of culture war element or in urban politics uh, keeps uh, you know Italians inside and he he definitely wants to turn this to to politics and of course he's waiting for the American election so whether it works uh, very well or not so much politically in Europe another Trump or Trumpist victory in the United States to in two years time could be, an opportunity for him to reinforce his strength. So Orban is a person who never gives up. He always looks, you know, for new opportunities. And these ideological friendships are important for him. And well, this is this is also important in Europe because there will be European elections in two and a half years from now. And I think the EU elections are already inside. In, in Orban's uh, mind. So maybe we could just end with that. You sort of started to look beyond Europe at these global questions. So Trump is one kind of element and obviously Orban's become a favourite voice on the in the Republican Party at key gatherings like CPAC. But also um, the other big power in the world is China and 
Orban has been a, a, a kind of early adopter of policies to attack to attract China, signing trying to hitch the Hungarian caravan to the Belt and Road Initiative, creating golden visas for Chinese uh, people to move to to Hungary. How is he going to manage the tension between those two relationships, which are becoming increasingly difficult to reconcile with one another? I think uh, Orban doesn't really want to be uh, congruent or systemic. So his main politics is that he's always maneuvering, especially when we are speaking about big powers compared to Hungary is obviously very small. Uh, so his, his main political kind of thinking is that he needs room for maneuver. I, he always uses this term that he needs room for maneuver uh, and exercise as much power. And uh, so I think that, that this is the, the thing to think. With the, with the, with the Chinese, the Orban explained several times that uh, relation with China is important. For him, he says hungry, but for him, because the West, he believes the West is over. The the dominance of the West is over and the East is rising. And he always thinks that if he's the first to attach, let's say, from the Eastern Europe, from the region, a larger region, towards China, that then it's a relationship and the Chinese will be nice to, you know, to us at some point. Uh, It's, uh, he is ready to pay quite a lot for that. So a couple of giga projects, which are Chinese projects, which are present in Hungary, are really not useful for Hungarian, like the Belgrade Budapest uh, super fast railway is something that that has physically no use for Hungary uh, economically. It doesn't even stop anywhere but Budapest. So it's only good for the Chinese because it's an important element of the Belt and Road Initiative. So it's a kind of favor to China. We didn't see so far the Chinese would be any way benevolent to him. But I think he's, he's really a big risk taker and he is ready to pay from our money to, to this kind of uh, hopes. Well, that's, uh, I suppose, all we've got time for in this discussion. But there's one thing left to do on our podcast, which is our bookshelf section. Obviously, the one thing I want to recommend to all of our listeners is is Jujana's book, Tainted Democracy. But what's on your bookshelf? Well, I have uh, two books, if if I can. One is uh, is a fresh book just came out from Maria Ressa, who is a Philippine uh, journalist. And she was a Nobel laureate last year. And I had a wonderful discussion with Maria a couple of days ago. Her book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, describes her life in a Philippine journalist and how in Duterte's regime, journalists had to suffer and how the internet influenced journalism. And I think I like this book very much because... When we spoke with Maria in another program, we actually we were both surprised how how many similarities we, we found between the techniques, the playbook of how the Philippine uh, regime and an Orban's regime is working in the everyday life. So, and of course, the other book is a bit more of a relief. It's um, Philip Sands East West Street. I was really impressed by this book. And I found it really uplifting how, you know, over the history, justice and freedom and efforts for justice and freedom in very dire times can 
give a relief to people. And also, it's a, it's a very strange life there here in Hungary. But there is always reason to, you know, to work for something better. And I think this book really tells a lot about that. Great. We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, hopefully by also giving us a good rating and review on whatever platform you use to download the podcast on. And while you're there, do subscribe as well so you can listen to future episodes. But for now, from Zuzana Selenyi and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar. And the editor of this episode is Marlene Riedel.